Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today we begin a series of conversations with guests who will be making a virtual appearance at the 2020 Kentucky Book Festival during October and the virtual festival November 9th through the 14th. A great lineup of writers and subject matter ranging from a celebration of the women's suffrage movement, children's literature, investigative reporting out of the heart of Appalachia and history. You can find a complete schedule at kybookfestival.org. Our guest today is one of those authors, Chris Hamby. Later in the podcast, we will talk with novelist David Bell. Chris Hanby is an investigative reporter at the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in 2014 and was a finalist for the prize in international reporting in 2017. He has covered a a range of subjects, including labor, public health, the environment, criminal justice, politics, and international trade. A native of Nashville, he lives and works in Washington, D.C. today. His new book is Soul Full of Coal Dust, A Fight for Breath and Justice in Appalachia. Chris will be on a panel we're calling Healthy at Home, Appalachia Then and Now, sponsored by the University of Pikeville. Chris, first of all, congratulations on an important work. Um, And I must say, you you must feel pretty good that the book was uh, written up uh, recently in the New York Times uh, book review, Uh, That must be quite a treat. Indeed it was, and thank you. Yes, it was great to see that. So tell us the story of uh, Soul Full of Coal Dust. Well, this is really a a narrative um, that is sort of both sweeping and very intimate. Um, It is, it grew out of reporting that I have been doing since really going back to 2011 on black lung and the resurgence of black lung disease in Appalachia, which I think a lot of people don't realize has been happening, that after years of decline, um, rates of severe disease are now at the highest ever recorded. Um, That was what initially got me interested in the story back in uh, 2011. And I have since um, delved pretty deeply into the both why the disease is resurging and also why um, the uh, people who have it um, or their spouses have had so much trouble, uh, particularly in recent years, winning the modest government benefits that, to which they're entitled. Um, and so that has led to a lot of reporting on the influence of prominent uh, law firms and doctors working for the coal company. And the book is really a narrative of two men and how all those trends converge in their lives in a remarkable way in a dramatic legal showdown that has um, implications for minors across the country. Uh, Chris, the, um, I, I'm sure you wouldn't mind me reading just a, a blurb or two uh, from the uh, review in the New York Times uh, recently. 
this is one uh, paragraph. In Soul Full of Coal Dust, Hamby, a journalist uh, at the New York Times, employs dogged investigative work and a deep well of empathy for his subjects to painstakingly bring this private pathos to life. In just that one sentence, that's, um, that is a, uh, a kind uh, review uh, that I think will uh, invite people to, to read the book. And you mentioned a couple of things, and just taking a couple of words uh, from that, um, empathy for the coal miners, uh, empathy for their wives, um, a, a certain, uh, you've been working in the region for a long time. I mean, 2011, to stay on a story for that long, so you must have some heartfelt feelings of, about uh, the geography, uh, the people, uh, the uh, and what they've been going through for many, many years. Yeah, and that was really one of the most enjoyable things about working on this. And one of the reasons why I've really been able to, if you work on something for, you know, eight, nine years, um, you've got to really be interested and care about the subject. And that it was certainly the case with this. I mean, going back to, I remember um, my earliest um uh, experience really with with this was you know some trips to West Virginia and then and also to Eastern Kentucky and I was really sort of um, captivated by both just the landscape the history but especially the people um, and and just how they invited me into their homes and showed just sort of a quiet strength that was incredibly encouraging in the face of of a lot of real hardships that they were facing and, and injustices. And um, I think the book I've tried to bring as many of those people and, and show them um, for their everyday heroism as I can, um, while particularly highlighting two uh, characters in particular. Yeah, even in this work of, um, of nonfiction, you have a couple of protagonists uh, that uh, at least two that you zero in on. Uh, tell us about them and, and how... Uh, you discovered them, uh, and uh, and why you chose them. These are really two men, um, Gary Fox, a, a coal miner, and John Klein, who is a um, ultimately becomes a lawyer after going back to law school in his 50s, but came to the coal fields as an idealistic young uh, volunteer um, as part of the war on poverty in the 60s. And I chose them because they're their lives intersect in sort of a very dramatic way that encapsulates all of the problems that we're seeing with both the resurgence of the disease and with the injustices of the benefit system. And they also fought back in a very dramatic way um, to uh, win some remarkable reforms for, for other people. But um, I had originally met John uh, in 2012, when I was doing some reporting on the resurgence of the disease, and he had told me about a pattern that he felt like he was seeing of withholding critical evidence by the leading law firm representing coal companies in these cases. And um, he described to me the case in which that had happened in the case of Gary Fox, the coal miner. And the details were just so striking and really tragic in a lot of ways um, that I had to look into it more deeply. And that's really, I've 
I've been doing that, um, looking into those two men's lives as part of the larger picture here for really the last um, six, seven, almost eight years. So they've um, become, I'm sure, friends, um, and uh, you, you've you've shared a lot over uh, these years. It has. So I don't think I'll be spoiling a, a much to say that that Gary Fox. Um, has passed um, of black lung disease. So I haven't really, um, it has been more difficult. I've, I've had to get to know him primarily through his family and his coworkers and his friends and things like that. But John Klein and I have been in regular touch and I'm sure that he's tired of hearing from me by now, but um, we still uh, correspond, you know, multiple times a week. Before we uh, talk about some of the history uh, that you report on and, and, and write about, I want to pull another um, sentence from the New York Times Review because I think it addresses uh, what some of us who are um, lifelong Kentuckians or who have reported uh, in Appalachia or continue to watch and listen for what's coming out of there and uh, trying to at the same time, we're marveling at the at the beauty of, um, in our case, Eastern Kentucky and and the Appalachian region and and uh, the the people who are there and and understanding them. At the same time, we are uh, empathetic with the struggles that they've had for many generations. Uh, this sentence um, is. Um, after all of the, the problems that they've gone through, and yet their Appalachian fortitude is such that they keep up the fight even as death approaches. That, uh, those, those, that phrase, Appalachian fortitude, how can you explain that to someone who is from outside the region or is coming to this story maybe for the first time through your book? Yeah, I think it's something that's sort of Appalachia is a region that, a region that is, is is poorly understood in a lot of the country, and that was one thing that I hope to to bring to light in this book is a more realistic, hopefully more nuanced portrayal of the region and its people. But there's almost this mythologized notion of the Appalachian coal miner, and um, I, I wanted to really show that. Um, it's absolutely fortitude and it's physical strength, but it's also intellectual and emotional fortitude. Um, and it's just very difficult to describe um, unless you've seen it and experienced it. And it's, to me, it's not really, it, it's sort of one of those things that best, um, best expresses itself through examples of Miners just sitting, I, I just think back to conversations in living rooms of, of miners struggling to breathe, but saying they're not going to give up until they've um, they, they've won their claim because, and, and, you know, people like Gary Fox in the book pressing on um, quite literally on their deathbed as they're gasping for breath, um, still fighting legal battles that they know are not going to be of immediate benefit to themselves, but that they hope will improve the system and achieve some measure of justice for others in the future. Chris, uh, give us a, uh, a brief overview of, of some of the history. Um, you write of the, of the 60s particularly, now we can, we can take it far back from that, but uh, in, in that um, 
generation, that decade, uh, and, and what they were trying to achieve. Um, give us a little overview of that, please. Yes, and that's one thing that um, I got to explore in the book is there's a really rich history, and you could go back, obviously, much further than the 60s, but it, really what I didn't realize was the degree to which this was a movement of rank-and-file coal miners that rose up in 1968, 1969, and really demanded in the face of um, they defied even their union um, at the time, uh, and uh, really the medical and legal establishments um, against significant political odds, and they demanded that um, that there actually be legal recognition that black lung is a real disease that causes disability, and that they basically extracted uh, in 1969 one of the strongest occupational health and safety laws ever passed in this country. And in that law, we, the American people acting through Congress, uh, basically said, we're going to make two promises to this nation's coal miners and that, you know, one, we know how to eradicate the disease. You do it by controlling the amount of dust in the mines that miners are breathing. And so we're going to impose limits and force companies to control that. And then two, in the meantime, for those uh, poor people who do get it, um, we're going to provide fair compensation. And what has followed has really been a 50-year struggle to try and make those two things a reality. And that's um, in large part what the book is about, is, is why that hasn't happened and, and how people are trying to make that a reality today. How do you see the progress, if any, uh, that um, has been made since, uh, let's say, well, the the era that you were writing about in uh, in the late '60s uh, created some reform, but how do you see that uh, uh, going forward to today, and why is the struggle still continuing? It's a difficult question. And yes, the reforms in the 1960s, I mean, I don't want to make it seem like they didn't work. They were remarkable achievements and they really laid a very solid groundwork. What has happened since is that on the prevention side, um, there were a number of loopholes that were in the original law. Uh, and then there has been just a history of basically rampant cheating by the industry. Um, because the system that was set up largely relies on them to self-police in terms of controlling the dust levels and taking the measurements to prove to regulators that they are complying with the dust levels. And there are all sorts of ways to make your readings look like you're following the law without actually protecting minors. Um, what has happened uh, more recently is that there was a new rule in 2014 that closed some of those loopholes and lowered the dust limit uh, and also required a new type of sampling device that should be less susceptible to fraud. So um, the way that this disease goes, we will hopefully see the benefits of that in a few years down the road in terms of miners not getting um, these severe forms, but that remains to be seen and a lot depends on whether regulators actually enforce it. Um, and then on the benefits side, I think it has really been, there have been a lot of structural inequities in the system that have also been addressed with some recent reforms, although um, difficulties certainly remain. Um, 
but I think we are moving closer, but it, the, the fight for this group of activists is, is not yet finished. Uh, you um, might be uh, a member of a, a very small fraternity of men and women who have really been deeply involved in Appalachia and the coal business for some years. We in Kentucky have uh, have watched it uh, from uh, go from boom to bust. Uh, and uh, these last few years, uh, even though uh, promises by uh, many uh, politicians and uh, different office holders that uh, coal is coming back and it's coming back strong and we're going to employ miners. And how does that, does that in any way offset uh, the, the, the problems that uh, our miners are, are facing today just because you have less mo- coal being mined, uh, less coal miners, uh, they still contract the, the disease. Uh, wh- where do you find that today? Because uh, as you well know, and, and I'm sure our listeners do too, uh, coal production has plummeted in Kentucky um, and um, many people predict it'll never come back um, to the the day that we saw, even when you started your work uh, in 2011, 2012 uh, in Appalachia, in eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, I think it it is, um, we're seeing just the market is moving that way. It, it inevitably will be that, that coal, I think, will probably be a, an ever dwindling sort of piece of the energy puzzle, and that more of it is being mined uh, on the surface with fewer miners. Um, Now, it's important, though, that we continue to protect the miners because there still are, while the numbers are lower, there are a significant number, many, many thousands of miners who are exposed uh, to this. And there are also um, some of the more modern mining practices. There's significant evidence that those are actually leading to more severe disease. So even as uh, fewer miners ultimately will work um, in these conditions, uh, you know, we can't, it, it would be irresponsible of us to simply wait um, for that. We, we, we need to really actively police this going forward. One of the uh, other statements um, in, the, in the piece, in the review, uh, and you spoke to it a little bit earlier about the new generation of, of black lung sufferers. Uh, the new generation, as they call it, of sufferers saw their ailment as, uh, quote, the way of the world. As one miner tells uh, you in your book, uh, you quote, if you wanted to keep your job, you worked when and how the company told you and didn't complain. And another said, if you was lucky enough to get a job and you had a family to feed, you've done what you had to do to feed your family and sacrifice your body. So um, this is a way of life. Uh, this is uh, grandfathers, fathers, and now sons who are still going into the mines. Yes, in lesser numbers, but you're, uh, you just said that uh, the, the disease itself is even more severe than it uh, once was, or at least it's still prevalent in the people who are who are doing uh, deep mining. Um, is there anything on the horizon that gives uh, miners or the region any hope that it, it's going to get better in the next decade, let's say? I think miners can always have hope that we've known and what we need to do to control this disease. And 
there has been this sort of mythology in the industry that um, that has frankly been beneficial to a lot of companies where they've sort of inculcated this belief that you cannot do this job without getting black lung. And that is simply not true. Um, there are very basic things to control this disease. And I think that in recent years, as I mentioned, with some of the rule changes in 2014, some of those, we know what we need to do and we finally did them. Um, those were sort of the culmination of efforts that had taken place over 15 or 20 years previously. There is another um, item going forward that uh, a lot of activists and lawyers and doctors have identified as uh, a measure that the government could take that would significantly protect minors. And that is to impose a specific limit on the amount of a particular type of dust, silica, that is in the mines. That is, there is a, uh, a growing body of evidence, fairly overwhelming by this point, that that is what is in large part driving this disease. Um, that is something that is on the government's radar, but they have not yet taken action. Um, I think a lot of, of, of miners are pressing for that and will continue to press for that going forward. What is your um, last question, uh, best hope for a region that you not only have reported on, but you've really gotten to know quite well, and I'm sure you have some affinity and uh, for uh, the, the people and the region itself. What is your best hope uh, looking at, uh, into the future? Gosh, that's, that's a tough one. And, and you're absolutely right that it's, um, I've developed it. It almost feels like, um, you know, parts of Southern West Virginia, especially are sort of a, feels like a bit of a second home um, in, in some ways. Um, and I wish I was, uh, had a prescription for the future and, and knew what we could do. It's clear that simply making promises that coal is going to sustain the region indefinitely by itself um, are not realistic, um, regardless of what happens with environmental regulations going forward. I think just for market reasons, um, that is just the way that things are going. And we really need to have a, a an honest conversation with, uh, with between everyone in this country, really, and, and the people who live in this region, because we all owe them, whether we realize it or not, a tremendous debt for the work that has come out of and the resources that have come out of this region over the years. And I'm hoping just that, you know, bringing some of these issues to light will spur the conversation and that people who are smarter than I am and more policy oriented than I am will have solutions. Um, I have a hard time believing that there aren't any, um, but I just have great hope that we will engage in a serious conversation and take the people of Appalachia seriously and really think about what we owe them in their future. That's Chris Hamby. Uh, his new book is Soul Full of Coal Dust, A Fight for Breath and Justice in Appalachia. During the virtual Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Festival, November 9th through the 14th, we have some really great conversations uh, that, that we think you'll enjoy uh, throughout the, the week. Um, you can hear Chris and other authors who are writing about Appalachia uh, and uh, the region, uh, the health of the region, uh, and, and many other topics on Saturday, November the 14th at 11 a.m., uh, again, you can check out that schedule and uh, put a note on your calendar uh, at kybookfestival.org. 
Uh, next up on the podcast today, novelist David Bell, another Kentucky Book Festival guest, uh, coming up right after we hear from our friends at Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. David Bell is a best-selling author of 11 books and professor of English and the director of the MFA program in creative writing at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green. He is married to writer Molly McCaffrey. They have collaborated on several books. David's latest thriller is, in, is titled The Request. David will moderate a panel which includes mystery writers Rhea Fry. Andrew Welsh Huggins, and Dana Reidenauer at the Virtual Kentucky Book Festival. David's new novel is replete with intrigue and the whodunit style that has made him such a successful writer. Here's just a, a real quick blurb. Ryan Francis has it all. Great job, wonderful wife, beautiful child, and he loves posting photos of his perfect life on social media until the night his friend Blake asks him to break into a woman's home to retrieve inc incriminating items that implicate Blake in an affair. David, I hope I gave it to justice there with a little drama. Um, David, how are things going down there at my uh, alma mater, Western Kentucky University? Uh, things are going fine, all things considered. Um, we're adjusting to the new normal or the new craziness, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, things, things are going along fine. It's a beautiful fall day, so at least we have that. We can go outside and uh, it's safe outside. <laughs> Does any of this uh, pandemic uh, tumultuous year um, lend itself to a storyline that uh, you would ever consider writing about? You know, that's the big question that I think a lot of writers have and editors have been thinking about is, do people want to read books about the pandemic or do people want to escape from the pandemic, right? Um, but I think inevitably all of the anxiety and uncertainty and confusion is going to show up in books one way or the other. So maybe the books won't directly be talking about a pandemic, but there will be just more anxiety and, and things creeping into books. I've always heard that um, when the world is in worse shape, it's better for people who write horror novels and thrillers and things because uh, people kind of want to find some outlet for all that anxiety in a controlled way. So maybe that's good. Um, although I'd be happy to have less craziness in the real world and happier books being written right now. Is Bowling Green a, a good place for a writer to be? 
I think it is. Um, there's a nice literary community here with the university and our public library system. The Warren County Public Library System is really an excellent library system. They have a lot of events. There are always events of various kinds on campus. Um, you know, it's, it's a friendly place um, and it's a comfortable place. And so I think that's really what, what a writer needs is to feel comfortable somewhere. Um, it's not expensive to live here. So if you were a, a starving artist, you could probably find a way to survive somehow in Bowling Green and, and find a way to do it. So, and there, and there are a lot of different kinds of creative people here. There are filmmakers, there are visual artists, um, you know, there's theater stuff going on. So there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Bowling Green. So I, yeah, I think it is a nice place. Well, you've been such a, um, a prolific uh, writer over the, the years um, and, and, and quite successful in, in what you're doing. Uh, at the same time that you uh, direct uh, a, a program at, uh, at Western, uh, you, you are full-time uh, teaching uh, load. Uh, how, do you, how, do, how does a writer like you churn out uh, a novel a year. I think almost you haven't, you've only missed a couple of years since what, 2008. How, how does that happen? Um, well, I, I don't have any children and I don't have any friends. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's really, it's, you know, that the, I mean, first of all, if you're, a, if you're a university professor at a place like WKU, so part of, part of the job is publishing and writing, you know, so, so it's kind of built in that there's an expectation that I would be publishing and writing things. And really the, the academic schedule allows some time for writing because we get a nice break between semesters um, summers, you know, there's, there's a little bit going on, but there's not a ton going on in terms of the university in the summer, or at least for me in the summer. Um, so, you know, so there's some time there to do it. And, um, I've always been pretty good. You know, this started in graduate school. When I was in graduate school, I had to be really compartmentalized to be able to take classes and teach and write and kind of occasionally have a social life. Um, and so the same things just carried over. I mean, I'm pretty well able to say, you know, here's the teaching part of my life and here's the writing part of my life. And, and sometimes one takes precedent over the other, you know, there's sometimes they're just more pressing. One thing is more pressing than the other. Um, but I just, you know, you just have to learn to be balanced and disciplined and, and, and people, you know, people who don't have jobs in our writing, are still probably balancing things. You know, they have kids, they have parents, sick parents, they have, you know, there's always stuff going on and you just have to figure out a way to balance those things. Tell us about uh, your writing life. Tell us about, uh, uh, you're in a, uh, a very attractive uh, room uh, with some photos, uh, some art on the background. You've got bookshelves. Are, do you write uh, in, uh, do you have a laptop there that you're, working on and talking to me on uh, Zoom? Yeah, but this this is a fake background. I'm really, it's it's all, it's all. I don't believe that. No, no it isn't. That's my real name. Um, <laughs> I, I can take, tell. <laughs> I can't take credit for any of the decor. That's not my doing. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, you know, like we were talking about Bowling Green, you know, I, uh, Bowling Green is beautiful this time of year. It's fall. The leaves are just starting to change. And I 
there's a big window right in front of me. Um, so I can stare out the window and watch people uh, going by and walking their dogs and jogging and things like that. Things I don't want to do. Um, but yeah, so um, this is the writing space most of the time. When the weather's nice, it, the benefit of the in creation of the laptop is that you can take your writing just about anywhere, you know? So like, if I want to go sit outside when the weather's nice, I can do that. Uh, and that's a benefit that I guess back in the old days, people didn't have, or when you had a big desktop computer, you couldn't do that. So, so yeah, it's, it's good to have a nice space and that contributes to being able to get stuff done. In order to um, keep that um, teaching uh, discipline, as well as your writing uh, uh, discipline, uh, do you write, early in the morning, uh, late at night, all day long, uh, weekends. Uh, I'm always curious about where, especially someone like you who's doing a, a novel a year, find the, the, the time. Are you so compartmentalized or disciplined that you're writing a little bit every day? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the stage of the thing I'm writing. So, like, when I'm writing the first draft and really just getting everything down, then it's, then it's an everyday thing. Um, when, when it's time to revise, uh, work with my editor and revise and do those things, it's not quite as regimented, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, when things are going well, pretty much every day. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not one of those people who gets up at 5 a.m., uh, I, I can't do that. That's too early for me. Um, but I do, I do like to start in the morning and, you know, um, and I, I usually have a word count for the day of, you know, like about 1500 words, just a reasonable amount. Um, and if I get more than that, great. Um, and, and like I said, a lot of, a lot of the writing of the first draft happens over the semester break between the two semesters when I'm not teaching. And so then there's just, there are much, many fewer distractions. The university completely shuts down for a couple of weeks at that time. So there's no one bothering me. Um, and then it's also good because when I see relatives over the holidays, I just say, hey, I'm sorry, I have a deadline. I can't, I can't do all the things you want me to do. And then it's an excuse to get out of spending time with family, uh, which is also wonderful. So I would recommend that to anybody who wants to be a writer. <laughs> uh, well, I might ask you in a few minutes um, what else you would recommend uh, for someone uh, listening who wants to be a writer, or maybe uh, the way you engage uh, with your students uh, about the, the writing that they're doing. And, and, uh, but I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, latest work and uh, how is it, if it is, different from what you've been doing for the last, uh, gosh, 10 years or so. Um, and, and what's uh, really, I, I read that little blurb. It sounds uh, intriguing, as I think I've probably said. Um, so tell us about uh, The Request. Yeah, The Request, you, you made it sound really good. Um, the Request is, is just kind of that, uh, everybody in life has an old friend from when they were young. And it's fun to be friends with that person when we're young, uh, when we're in our 20s or in college, because that person is a little dangerous and they lead us, you know, they encourage us to do things that we might not ordinarily do. And it's always exciting and crazy to be around that person. But then when we get older, we kind of feel like I don't want to have that 
person around anymore because every time I'm around that person, I get into a lot of trouble and it's no good. And so the request begins with the main character, Ryan, and his best friend from college, Blake, who is that wild, crazy, troublemaking kind of guy, shows up back in his life and says, I've got something for you to do. And not only that, when Ryan says, I don't want to do it, uh, Blake says, if you don't do it, I'm going to tell everybody about that thing you did in college that no one knows about and that the statute of limitations has not expired on. And if you don't do it, I'm going to ruin your life, basically. So everybody wants to have a friend like that to come back into their life. So that's where trouble starts, is that, you know, Ryan basically feels pressured, blackmailed to go and do this thing. And, and the, really, it's a story about how, and I, th I think I write about this a lot, things that we think we've left in the past, things that we want to leave in the past, are never actually in the past. Things we try to push away and ignore from the past, they always come back and haunt us one way or the other. And, and we, we have to deal with those things either in the past or they're going to come back uh, much, much worse somewhere down the road. And that's really what the request is about, is that. And so Ryan has to try to deal with all this stuff he's been ignoring. Is... Um... Is it in any way like what you've done in the past with your previous novels? I, th I think it's a it's similar. I mean, people who've read my other books will see that it's it's about it's similar in the sense that I tend to write about regular, ordinary people uh, who are who are living pretty ordinary, good lives, and then this this thing disrupts it. Some extraordinary, strange circumstance disrupts their perfect. Uh, well-manicured lives, right? And they have to try to figure out a way to deal with that. I mean, the only thing that's a little different about this one is um, it does deal with the issue of social media um, that, that Ryan is obsessed with projecting a certain image of himself on social media. And then the truth about his life is contradictory to that perception of himself on social media. And so there's kind of a, you know, a subtle running commentary about how we, we obsess over the version of ourselves we want to present to the world. Uh, and is that really healthy? And is that covering up something that is much darker? So, so that commentary, I think, is different than anything else that's been in my other books. But the suspense thriller part of it, I think, is, is going to appeal to the people who have liked reading my books before. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer and 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 really more or less write full time? Uh, of course, you are a university professor, and that's that's enough for some people to handle. But um, when did you first feel like that uh, you could sell a book or two, or you had something to say, or uh, that you had uh, some, or or maybe you were encouraged in in graduate school before or after by a mentor who said uh, you ought to try to do something? Well, I mean, I probably always wanted to be a writer, even when I was a kid. I probably was thinking about being a writer because I loved to read. My parents loved to read. So I was always around books and I was always interested in books and interested in the people who wrote books. I guess when I was young, when I was a kid, I thought, that the people who wrote books were all either dead or they were far away somewhere living, living exotic 
strange lives in, in Paris or New York or whatever. Um, and when I got older and, you know, got, got into college or whatever, and I realized, well, most writers aren't doing that. Most writers are just leading fairly regular lives. They have, they have kids, they have families, they might have a job, uh, you know, they cut the grass on the weekend, you know, they, they do all those things. Um, so really, so, so getting to the point where I wanted to really try to do it was kind of a slow process of, um, you know, yes, I was encouraged by people. I was encouraged by high school teachers. I was encouraged by professors in graduate school. I was encouraged by writers I met at writing conferences. Um, that, you know, that is a big thing. Um, but I think that when anyone sets out to do something creative, in their life. Um, it, it's hard to find encouragement. Our, our, our culture is not set up to say to someone who wants to do something creative, yes, go for it. That's a great idea. The first thing you always hear when, if someone says, I want to do something creative, I want to be a musician, I want to be a painter, I want to be a writer, I want to be an actor, whatever. The first thing you hear is, well, you better have a backup plan. Well, it's really hard to do that. Oh, I don't know if you should do that. You know, you know, look at so-and-so. They wanted to do that and they failed and, you know, whatever. Um, so really, if you can find just one or two people to say, yes, this is a good idea, go for it. Um, I think you're really fortunate. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's the hardest part is for people to just say the words out loud. I want to do this and then continue to pursue it. And I think the most important thing probably in any of those endeavors is not how much talent someone has, because I think there are lots of talented people. I think the most important quality someone can have is persistence and determination, um, sticking to it for years and years when not much is happening. Um, and, and there's a lot of rejection and and times when people aren't making a lot of money and no one, you know, no one's giving you direct encouragement. I think that's the hardest thing for everybody. And that's why it's so important to have some people around who are encouraging you to just keep going and saying that it's worth it. So back to those, um, we'll call on you today to give us a couple of tips back to those uh, points that uh, you, you practice uh, that you've honed that, you uh, try to talk with your students about what are just one or two suggestions that, that you would have if everybody's got a story. Uh, everybody uh, at times, uh, I think, has a desire to express themselves. And uh, I hope we're a long way from the time when we're not writing and uh, whether it's on a laptop or uh, in some other means. Uh, what are one or just one or two things that you can um, you can pass along to us uh, and to the listeners? I mean, I would say the first thing is that somebody has to read a lot. If you want to be a writer, you have to read a lot uh, and you have to read a lot of different things. You can learn certain techniques about writing just from reading journalism and reading the newspaper, um, read all kinds of fiction, nonfiction, whatever, um, just so you know what's out there, just so you absorb the way to tell a story, um, absorb the techniques subconsciously of what other writers have done. So just read a ton of books so you understand characterization and plot and setting and all that kind of stuff. And then the other big thing is just, I would say, 
try to write the book that you want to read. You know, if you know, imagine that you're the reader and you want to read a certain kind of book, and there's probably no perfect book in the world for you as a reader. Uh, and don't try to to. Uh, I mean, we all begin by imitating. You know, everybody who's a beginner imitates, and that's fine. That's part of the process, right? But try very much just to write what you want to write, what you think would be interesting to read. Uh, don't don't try to get past imitating other people, and then you have a good chance of writing something that's original, um, that other people will respond to positively. Um, so, so those would be the two big things that I think anybody can do. As a, You don't have to go to school for that. All you need is, you know, access to a library or access to, these days, you don't even have, you know, all you need is uh, internet access and you can download books and do all that kind of stuff. So um, I would say read a lot and then write what you really want to write and then worry about the rest of it later. Uh, a couple of final uh, or one final question, uh, and, and I know you have this uh, at, on the tip of your tongue because you probably uh, either assign or ask your students to 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 read these readers. But um, as far as someone that that you looked to or learned from or marveled uh, at um, uh, of a of a classic nature or someone who is uh, no longer with us, uh, let's just say in the last five, six, seven decades, uh, who would that be? And then who do you read today? Who, who would you think that uh, we need to, uh, to go to our independent book seller and, and, uh, and order something in order not only to be entertained, I mean, that's the bottom line to this, but also to learn uh, from, from this writer? Gosh, that's a tough question to answer. Um, writers who I think you should read who, who may no longer be with us. Um, I, I'll, I'll give a shout out to a writer who's no longer with us uh, by the name of Ed Gorman, uh, who wrote mysteries, westerns, horror, everything. Uh, if there'd been any justice in the world, he would have been uh, a massive best-selling writer. Um, but he, I just think he he's a master of writing understated, clear prose and characters and atmosphere that is, the writing is deceptively simple, but you really feel and experience everything that the characters are feeling and experiencing, which is, which is basically what you want in writing is just, you, you want to be in that three-dimensional experience. And if a writer can create that, then then more power to them, right? Uh, another one who I would recommend, who I teach a lot, who's also no longer with us is Octavia Butler, um, known as a science fiction writer. Um, I, I teach her short story collection, Blood Child, and just the stories in there deal with all different subject matters. You know, you can, there's the, there's the weight of the ideas, you know, because clearly she's dealing with big ideas uh, in the stories. And, and, you know, learnedness and thoughtfulness that, that is all behind the stories, but then the stories themselves are very, very compelling and are in these different worlds, all these different worlds, either different planets or our world in the future. Um, so those are a couple writers I would, I would say I, you could learn a lot from. Very different writers, but you could learn a lot from them. Um, in terms of contemporary people I teach, 
The one thing I, I really like to teach over and over again in a fiction writing class is just the best American short stories anthology that comes out every year. And the reason I like to teach that is because, first of all, they do a really good job of having a lot of diverse authors in there. So it's just, it's a grab bag of people from different walks of life. There can be really famous writers in there. There can be writers who have published just a couple of stories and they're in there. They can publish from really obscure journals you've never heard of up to, you know, the New Yorker and the Paris Review. And, and the stories are always just, it's a cross section of styles. You know, some stories are very straightforward and, and clear and whatever. Some stories are experimental. Um, the subject matter is all over the place. Um, some stories are really short. You know, some years there's like a story that might be a page and a half long, and then some stories are 30 pages long. And so it's all different stuff in there. And I think someone who is uh, starting out as a writer and just wants to know what is being published in literary journals and what can they aspire to, I think reading that series is a good idea. And, and quite frankly, sometimes I read that series and I think, how on earth did this story get into Best American Short Stories? But then every year there are stories in there that just blow my mind. They're so good. And, and that's a discussion that I have with my students is, you know, we might disagree about these stories because sometimes the students are like, I think the story's great. And I think, I don't know. I don't know why anybody <laughs> thinks the story's great. Um, so anyway, it's, it's just it's yeah. a good conversation starter with students. And I think if somebody wants to know what's being published out there, that's a place to go and look. Do you write short stories? I very rarely do I, um, because just, I mean, unfortunately there, there, there are fewer and fewer places to publish them. And yeah. it's just, it's kind of consuming to be writing uh, a novel every year. And so the, my energies go into there, but I, Sometimes I do, and I do like it, and I like teaching short stories because I think that's that's the way to learn. You can do these shorter things without being committed to, I'm going to write a 300-page novel, right? You can write a 10-page story and learn certain techniques and then later on apply them to writing a novel. Well, David Bell, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, I want to tell the uh, uh, folks uh, listening that on Thursday, October 29th, as part of our virtual Kentucky Book Festival. Uh, David will be joined by mystery writers uh, Rhea Fry, Andrew Welsh Huggins, and Dana Reidenauer, all uh, mystery thriller uh, writers, um, and David is going to moderate that panel. Uh, full details are available uh, on our Kentucky Book Festival websites uh, at kyhumanities.org and kentuckybookfestival.org. A full schedule of events and information on author programs. Uh, we're starting our happy hours every Thursday night at seven o'clock, uh, and that'll lead up to our our big week uh, of uh, activities uh, all week long and all day long. Uh, you'll see author programs with uh, such uh, notables as John Grisham, uh, historian David Blight, uh, poet Nikki Finney, and, and many, many others. So, David, we appreciate... Uh, you being not only on the panelists, but uh, conducting that conversation, it'll be uh, sort of must-see Zoom. You can't say must-see TV anymore. We, we need to have a, a rhyming word there, must-see something. I'll work on that. So We'll get the poets to work on that. Yeah. yeah. These, these writers who are on this panel are all uh, very talented writers, so you'll have something to learn from all of them. So I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. David Bell, thanks uh, very much for joining us on Think Humanities podcast.
Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.